AVXL episode 149 was recorded on August 5th, 2021. TVs without the TV stuff built in. Free audio test tools, TCL 8K, 6 Series reviews, Amazon Studios, Lord of the Rings has a release date, and we're down a billion hours, people. Don't forget, email ask at avxl.com if you've got a question for us. And thank you, thank you, thank you to each and every one of you that support us at patreon.com slash avxl. Without your support, this show would not be possible. Testing, one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AVXL, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear. No matter what your budget is, I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. Uh, I'm going to be up front, and I don't really care how angry any of you get with my next statement. I am vaccinated. My wife is vaccinated. My children are vaccinated, well, at least the child that can get vaccinated. And we're looking forward to the our youngest child getting vaccinated. And I mention that because, as many of you have noticed, people are going outside. Roku who's having a great year, right? Their revenue, they're up 81% uh, year over year for the second quarter of 2021. Like, like that's that's big. The total numbers of hours streamed fell by 1 billion hours over the prior quarter. So if you've been wondering if the world is waking up post-COVID, or more accurately, for those of you listening outside of the United States, if the U.S. is waking up, yeah, think about that, a billion hours. What I really want to know is what percentage that was. Is that like a billion out of 100 billion hours? Is that a billion hours out of 10 billion hours? It's just, think about that, a billion hours of television consumption or video consumption. Woo. This is part of their financial report. They talked about component shipping costs being up and uh, around 5.9%. Roku says it ate that hit, or as they put it, chose to insulate consumers from the increased cost for Roku players. And I think that's something that's worth reflecting. We've been talking about the availability or lack of availability of subwoofers because I have not been able to confirm this, but I feel like there is a limited number of places that build high-quality subwoofers in China since that's where most of them come from. Right. And that availability in those production lines is is what is impacting. And, and the fact that people are spending more time at home and becoming more interested in adding subwoofers to their home theaters or audio systems. The chip crisis is affecting everything. Yeah. Any electronics well, part you're trying parts, to buy, it seems to be yeah. limited stock at best or delayed or... Yeah. yeah. I mean, the price of copper is up vastly. The price of aluminum is up. But the other thing is, I was reading this week, part of the reason why I bring this Roku thing up is that I just was reading quotes on shipping container costs out of China are up five times, right? So a container of TVs or AVRs or whatever that cost $3,000 to ship a year ago are costing $15,000 now. Now, if it's, you know, 1,100 TVs in there, which is probably more TVs than can fit in a 40-foot container, but, you know, the shipping costs alone are, are up five times, right? Part of this is the COVID hangover. Part of it is other shipping issues. Uh, one of the articles I read was talking about how that Suez Canal blockage had really borked things up and it, you know, it has a domino effect that continues to impact people. But, you know, be aware, you know, there's sort of like the GPU market where everything is completely insane. And as a friend of mine pointed out uh, on Twitter, how do you feel? Or he asked, he's like, you know, how do you feel about a GPU costing as much as an entire gaming system two or three years ago. Uh, and the short Indeed. answer for me was like, can I rant about this? 
while GPUs are completely insane on availability for a lot of reasons, there are still continuing availability, shipping, things being tied up uh, in ports or customs. And overall, the cost of things is going up. So if you're thinking about buying something, understand that it may be more expensive later. And that just that just is what it is right now. You know, we're all about telling you to save your money and buy it later. But, you know, availability is still going to be squirrely. AVRs are much more available than they were. Speakers uh, are all over the map, depending on the manufacturer. It's not as bad as it was six months ago or eight months ago, but it's still pretty squirrely. So something to think about if you're looking to buy things. TVs seem to be available for the most part. In any case, if you got thoughts on this, do us a favor, email ask at avxl.com because we always want to hear what y'all are thinking. So Rob, you got an interesting email, something we get asked about. It sort of comes and goes every, you know, once every six months, once a year, somebody's, why can I not buy a 65 inch, a 55 inch, an 85 inch? Why can't I buy a monitor without all the stuff, the TV stuff built into it? I don't want TV apps. I just want a monitor. It's a popular thought. <laughs> I will say I'm, I'm asked that quite a bit. And I received a wonderful email from Mr. Tom Rabenberg that pointed me to a YouTube channel called Spare Change that featured Mr. Robert Zahn of Value Electronics, who we've talked about quite a bit. And he spent about six minutes detailing the very latest in displacement projectors that are arriving in his family store. Both Sony and LG actually make premium displays without all of the additional fluff, like tuners and apps and speakers even. These are just plain monitors, display only. Prices typically tend to be less than consumer models, at least on the Sony side, where they are offering anywhere from 32 to 100 inch LCD panels of pixel goodness. However, if you wanted to go down the route with an LG Pro display, unfortunately, those are still pretty damn pricey. They're they're way well, more. One. <laughs> <laughs> they're way more than you're going to pay for a consumer version of that LG Pro uh, of the LG OLED displays. When you dig into it, I found, and, and maybe it's just the channel I looked at, but the prices I saw, because I pulled that in, I was like, wow, a 65-inch 4K professional OLED panel. And depending on where you search for the model number, it either shows up under LG's signage division or the or sort of the signage or the, the pro kind of branding. But to get that from B&H Photo is about $16,000. Yeah, I would say Sony and their Pro offerings for their pro displays, uh, definitely a more value oriented thing. And it gives you just a quick page to go through to say, hey, exactly what size display do I want for this given environment? Granted, these displays generally are sold more to the installer side of the industry. Right. However, through retailers that are certified like Mr. Zahn and his value electronics team, they are actually offering these to the public. He also mentioned that the very first shipments of Hisense's dual cell the U9DG and LG's QNED 99TV that we talked about last week are arriving right now. So if wow. you want to get in on the very first to arrive in the United States, they are available through Value Electronics. That dual cell from Hisense is going to be really interesting because that is a 4K display with the 1080p LCD sandwiched behind it. It's actually shipping? Acting as a light valve. This should provide... I feel like we saw that two years ago. <laughs> we did. <laughs> We did, and it's now finally coming to fruition and availability. That should offer tremendous, even off-axis performance for minimizing artifacts like blooming and halos around bright objects on a dark background, in addition to providing, at least according to the hints I'm seeing so far, at least a thousand nits of light output. 
And I can't let it go by without mentioning the Value Electronics 2021 TV shootout. That will be happening (laughs) in September. This has always been a terrific event in terms of pitting the very best of the displays out there for consumers side by side, properly calibrated, and with general viewing options available for everyone. This is going to be a dedicated 4K shootout and an 8K shootout. And then following that, they will pit the very best 4K TV and 8K TV side by side for some cool direct comparisons using both downsampled 8K content to 4K in addition to native 8K content going back and forth just to see that is the best 8K TV actually better than the best 4K TV or not. Right. Uh, it's just going to be a really interesting time. And he mentioned for the first time they are plotting and planning their first projector shootout and they will be hmm. Providing more details about that in the coming weeks. I believe they're going to actually make this first shootout related to ultra short throw designs. I am anticipating some good content coming out of that. If you're anywhere near Scarsdale, New York, you should probably try to drop by Value Electronics just to sample the air and see what they have on display. So it looks like a really cool retail place. It definitely is. If you're in that location, he did mention during this YouTube presentation that it's funny, but apparently most TVs are assembled in Mexico and they arrive on the West Coast when they're shipped into the country. Uh, And because of that, the West Coast and Texas typically get them first. And a few days later, they're followed up. He gets them uh, about two or three days later, just just because of the transit time alone. And I'll be sure to put all these electronics to the TV shootout, the upcoming projector shootout, and a good link to value electronics in our show notes. Also talking about 8K TVs for a moment, the TCL 8K6 series is getting damn good reviews, at least in the uh, hand-selected samples that are being sent out to reviewers. Caleb Dennison over at Digital Trends posted his review of the TCL 8K6 series TV, the R648. He tested the sucker and came away seriously impressed. A significant upgrade over the 4K version of the 6 series TVs that are available right now. The R648 will hit up to 1,500 nits. Actually, over 1,500 nits of peak brightness if you need it. Superb on-axis viewing, which included great black levels. Superb saturation for color and great local dimming. He also mentioned that the 8K video processing being used in this new R648 is likely what's giving it the advantage as well over the 4K TV just by having better upsampling and scaling for all your content that you'll be throwing at it. Unfortunately, due to probably panel lottery or maybe a manufacturing thing, some dirty screen effect was noted on his review sample. But I am still not seeing this TV in retail channels yet, so I assume it will be soon and we'll be able to get uh, folks like ratings to take a look at an actual retail unit and see if they come away with any similar findings. But either way, for value and performance, that's looking terrific. And having a TV that can hit 1,500 nits will help combat even even the brightest rooms out there. Anything short of direct sunlight hitting the screen, that will still look pretty damn good. (laughs) It's nice when they look good. It's very, very nice. So I'm testing some speakers in a $70 class D amp right now. Uh, and find myself once again on audiocheck.net using its tools to verify wiring. Like, you know, do I have the left channel right? Do I have the right channel right? You know, because occasionally I have a brain fart when I'm running cables. It's critical um, to check those things. Checking the polarity, right? And 
And they have tests to do that, and uh, then using the low-frequency response and the subwoofer audio test. And that runs from, like, 10 to 200 hertz. And that w way I could kind of verify the low end, what the manufacturer was claiming versus what I'm actually able to hear um, without turning the volume up to 11 and putting my ear next to the speaker. Because right. in some cases, that's what you have to do. To, you know, some speakers that go down to 20 hertz, it only goes down to 20 hertz if you basically have your ear shoved up against the speaker. I don't consider that a legit frequency response, but for fun on audiocheck.net, I ran the high frequency sound check to test the upper limit of your hearing. Uh, and I might, cause I did it cause my teen was in the room and I asked him to raise a hand or shout out when he heard a tone after the nice voice that announces the frequency. And you know, there's like 20,000 Hertz. I hear nothing. 19,000 Hertz. I hear nothing. 18,000 Hertz. And, and I hear, what is that? <laughs> And I said, that's a test tone. And it made me laugh because, of course, my hearing's, you know, down around 14, 15K. Uh, Rob, you, you did this test and we're deeply horrified. We won't oh. discuss it because oh. your face was just painful, oh. uh, even through Skype. <laughs> it was significantly lower than anything, any number you have said. <laughs> However, I will uh, say I did the uh, frequency test for the low frequency response of my headphones. And I was already hearing stuff at 30 hertz. And that I was super happy about. I've always thought that my MDR 7506 Sony headphones did a really good job with bass. But yeah, yeah. that kind of just reinf reinforced my belief a little bit. If you got 30 hertz, you got the B-flat tuba, and you're well below the low E on an electric bass, which is always a plus. In nice. any case, I just want to give a shout out to AudioCheck.net. It is an incredibly useful website. There are a ton of tests there I haven't mentioned. There are headphone-specific tests. There are speaker tests. They, they, they let you try to pick out the difference on samples between high-res and standard-res audio. Uh, I've made donations to help keep them up and running. Uh, that also lets you log in and, quote, download every test file as a high-quality .wave file, uh, which is sweet. So, you know, just a shout-out to that. If you're, if you're looking to kind of test out your audio setup or if you're looking to learn a little bit more about some of the big questions people have in the world of audio, um, it is well worth your time to head over to audiocheck.net. You've been having calibration fun for your new desktop monitor. What did you use? Did you use your full calibration kit or do you use something simple? No, I actually whipped out the full kit that allowed, uh, <laughs> I should say I whipped out the portrait displays, Calman software, along with my premium meters to actually do a, I would say a quick and dirty profile on the monitor. I was doing it for sRGB color space, which is very similar to Rec. 709 a standard dynamic range and a standard color space. And I was generating an ICC profile for the monitor to be used by Windows. So it's effectively a, a color and grayscale correction being applied. Now, I literally reset the monitor back to its factory defaults, fired up the software, and then got to calibrating it. And the results were fantastic. It was really, really nice to see reference quality popping out of this monitor with very little effort. My error rates were well below the threshold of human beings noticing anything. And <laughs> overall, it was just quick and easy. I'll next be diving into the monitor's HDR mode and calibrating that as well to get the best of the uh, DCI P3 color space coverage that my monitor can handle. And I have to say, man, if you have a decent colorimeter and there are affordable packages out there from companies like X-Rite, profiling any monitor, be it a laptop or a standalone desktop display, can make even a value panel look much better. And 
very close to what I would call even a reference quality display. In my case, with the uh, Asus ROG XG27AQ that I have, it's a 1440p 27-inch monitor. Damn, it looks good. It's just, I can look at this now <laughs> knowing that everything is really spot on. I may actually go back and redo it and spend a little more time in the grayscale, but like I said, uh, my average error result, if you're talking about Delta E2000 results, mm -hmm. 0.4, which is ridiculous for an average, and the max error result was like 1.5. Anything below 3 is considered pretty good, and if you can get it below 2, that's almost unnoticeable by anybody, and if you can get it into that 1 point something range or less, that's effectively a reference image that you're looking at. You, you can assume that you're seeing that content exactly as intended. What was the biggest delta or what was the biggest change you had to make? Was it, you know, because I, I remember us talking about, I think it was a, a monitor that was just super blue from the factory. Totally. Um, was there any particular color that was out of whack or was all fairly in line to start with? The red and the green are fairly online on this monitor. They're, they're well saturated because they're trying to hit the DCI color space. But when I looked at blue, it was in an mm -hmm. odd spot, relatively speaking. Well saturated, but in an odd spot that really didn't line up well with where it should have been on target. And it was interesting to see that was the choice the company must have made, either for the color filter or for the backlighting system. When it produces blue, you know, mm -hmm. at 100%, there's there's really no adjusting the 100% color saturation. It is kind of where it is, but everything within that you should be able to massage and tweak and get it really close to where it needs to be. And that's what profiling a display really does. When I reset the monitor to default, it goes into a very wide color palette, the widest it can do. And I had initially tried calibrating the grayscale manually before I even started, and I got an okay result with that. But afterwards, I literally just reset it all back to the, the wide default color palette that it ships with, Took it from there and let the software then tame everything back into the uh, sRGB color space that I wanted it in. And that generally is the way you want to do it. If you're ever going to create a color space, you generally want to start with a wider color space and reduce it down. You never want to like put a monitor or a TV even into a confined color space first. Say like you put it into movie mode that gets it into Rec. 709 and then you calibrate it again to Rec. 709 it would be better to start with the color palette really wide and then have the software and the measurements and the, and the calculations bring everything into line. Never want to cheat yourself out of potential performance, but damn, I mean, that result I ended up with, with the quote-unquote quick and dirty method, was as good as any pro monitor I've looked at recently, and it makes me really curious to finally get some eyes on maybe one of asus's pro art which are significantly more expensive up to 10 times what i paid for my monitor but at this point i don't feel so bad about spending a little bit less and then being able to calibrate it <laughs> because the end result is just fantastic also even the out of the box mode when i tested that before i even calibrated it colors were pretty spot on especially in, it, in its preset srgb mode for pc use that was not bad for a factory calibration. And I think I had mentioned that when I first talked about this monitor, but generating that ICC profile and having that just load up automatically, that just com it combines a grayscale calibration with your color profile, uh, your color calibration as well. And it's just a, it's really a must have for any display, especially if you care about image accuracy. And the tools I'm using, and most of these tools are compatible either with the connected monitor that you're using or even a laptop. So never assume that, you know, what your monitor looks like 
out of the box or even with all the manual tweaking you can do is as good as it gets. These kind of calibrations and profilings are always going to... I have never seen it not improve upon a monitor. And in many cases, take even a mediocre monitor and make it something really close to reference. So I could have sworn it was going to be a fall 2021 release, but uh, Lord of the Rings uh, from Amazon Studios is going to be on Amazon Prime. Wrapped Shooting, it's going to be a television series. We mentioned this a while back. Wrapped uh, Shooting on August 3rd and it has a release date or debut date of uh, September 2nd, 2022. And if you go to at LOTR on Prime on Twitter, there is an image. Do not worry, Robert. I I can say there will be no delete expletive furry hobbit feet in that image, but it is a very pretty image. So I've been sober for approximately forever, uh, but I still really enjoy uh, Ryan Reynolds' ads for his aviation gin uh, because they're really funny. But if you need a fresh Ryan Ryan Reynolds fix between now and the next Deadpool movie, Free Guy comes out on August 13th. And... uh, uh, it's it's uh, The Matrix meets uh, any movie involving a video game character that doesn't know they're a video game character, and I'll leave it at that. I have yeah. not seen it yet, but I am, I'm always curious because I actually really enjoyed Detective Pikachu uh, with my children, which is something I really cannot believe, and I like to think it's because of Ronald Reynolds playing Pikachu. But uh, uh, <laughs> in even more startling news, um, the Rickroll conquers all on youtube yeah one billion views baby uh, if you go is that the most that's got to be the most watched video on youtube oh no not even close really yeah you're kidding me i have to say gangnam style probably is still number one there may be something else i forget what the most viewed youtube video is right now Pink Fong Kids Songs and Stories Baby oh. Shark Dance nine billion forty million oh. two hundred eighty two thousand three hundred and seventy five views. Oh, but anyway, last Is week that it right? was. A, I believe it. I believe kid stuff because <laughs> kids leave it on and auto repeat and. <laughs> oh. But a billion views, not bad for everyone rickrolling each other. And even Mr. Rick Astley posted on the YouTube webpage that his video exists on, thanking everyone and saying it's been a wild ride, considering that song was released back in 1987. This is this is pretty fun. <laughs> Just a fun stat I thought I'd throw out there. Throw it out there. Stat. Oh, my goodness. I really want to... F- I, I, I'm so shocked that... Uh... YouTube doesn't actually have its own listing of this. But yeah, it appears that Baby Shark Dance, Despacito, Johnny Johnny, Yes Papa, Shape of You, Ed Sheeran, 5.4 billion. That's a lot of views, man. <laughs> billion has been the number of the day. Gangnam Style is at 4.14 billion. Huh? Gosh, that's been... Billion views. It's like nine years ago now. Frightening. Utterly Frightening. Lots of good content. Actually, YouTube is where I spend most of my time in terms of my viewing habits between the the seriously large number of channels I subscribe to and just watching a, a variety of cool user-created content. It's always a good time for me. Absolutely love it. Or 0.1 billion views. Gee whiz. And what's really frightening is when you look at some of the uh, channels that are building off of that original video (laughs) up over a billion views we talk uh, on and off about uh, audio specs 
uh, and and sort of the difference between what's on the box and what you hear. My new favorite spec for an AV receiver is that it is 100 watts per channel going in 8 ohm speakers at 1 kilohertz, i.e. the, the narrow test, the, the least strenuous test, with 10% total harmonic distortion. So this was obviously a company that wanted to put 100 watts on the box because it's a very magic number in American marketing. But I assure you, 10% total harmonic distortion Oof. is way more. <laughs> way more than you want to deal with. You don't need a hearing test for that. You will hear that. <laughs> At least they're honest about where they got to that number. Um, but I, yeah, I bring that up in part because I mentioned that I'm, I'm testing out this $70 stereo amp. And it's interesting because this amp is built on a TI chip that Rob and I have heard uh, built out by an engineer uh, in, in, uh, at CES many, many years ago. And it was flawless. Uh, and it was flawless at all volumes. This particular implementation I have sounds very, very good except that there's about a third of the volume control where when you rotate, because it's a sort of an integrated amp, when you rotate the volume control, uh, it's, it's let's call it a 270 degree turn on this volume control. And the first 90 degrees sounds clean. And the last 90 degrees sounds clean. And that 90 degrees in the middle sounds like, which fascinates me because it it picks up uh, a huge amount of noise based on the position of the volume control, which is something I associate with uh, old amplifiers uh, of my youth, uh, old beat up cheap amplifiers I bought at flea markets uh, in my youth or garage sales. Part of the reason I mentioned that is so I'm looking at this and a couple other options. It's frustrating because uh, if you're looking for a smaller amp, a lot of them are not particularly well implemented, and uh, the biggest bargain in a stereo amp is still an old AV receiver from Denon, Morantz, Onkyo are the three that come to mind. Yamaha uh, are some of the best deals out there uh, if you're looking for a garage amp, you know, or an entry level amp or something to get started with. Totally, um, they're not going to have all of the latest surround sound technology, but for basic uh, 5.1 or for stereo and outputting to a subwoofer, they can be a fantastic bargain because you will often find them for sale for like 75 or 100 bucks because in the home theater world, they have no resale value to most people. True that. So 10% total harmonic distortion. It is way... Way too much. Pain. You know, if you go to audiocheck.net, you can hear 6% total harmonic distortion, and I'm pretty sure you won't find it acceptable. Um, you could also argue that you won't ever turn that amp up that high, and you might not, but, you know, I, it hurts me. <laughs> I like a clean amp. We do, we do. Hey, before we get out of here, I have to throw down a quick tip for all of you Synology NAS box owners out there. Secure that box. I mean, <laughs> I truly love my Synology NAS boxes. I, I operate several of them for anything from file storage to media distribution in the home, security camera recording. But those capable devices are ripe targets for malware. And a recent article posted by Synology themselves is talking about a brute force attack that's currently going around. And I noticed this about eight days ago. Suddenly my beloved NAS box was receiving over a thousand hits a day from people just trying to guess the password for it. And you can stop a lot of that nonsense quite easily by simply firing up that NAS and there is a built-in tool called Security Advisor that you can access through the main menu within DSM. Follow those recommendations, especially the one that relates to changing the default ports 
for DSM or your security camera system. By simply changing those ports, you'll probably eliminate the problem altogether. Otherwise, there are several other recommendations you can follow by simply following that advisor tool. In the process of securing my own boxes, I actually managed to tighten up the security so hard that I accidentally locked myself out. That is the admin account itself. I could no longer log into the box, and I was a little distraught about that until I realized that the wonderful reset button on the back of your Synology box, if you click it just <laughs> right, don't hold it too long, it will simply reset that password for the administrator and allow you to log in and change that. If you ever run into that scenario, I would highly suggest disconnecting it from the internet before you do that. Uh, keep it on your local network if you want, but don't let it touch the internet while you're resetting the master password for the thing. But anywho, pro tip, yeah, follow the advice in the security advisor, specifically regarding changing those ports. It may require on certain routers that you have to do some port forwarding, but it is totally worth it. And it takes maybe five minutes once you get the hang of it. And that is my tip of the week for you Synology box owners. And I will post a link to that Synology.com article that details more about this ongoing brute force attack. But it was pretty crazy. I was seeing over a thousand tries per day and it was really interesting oh. to watch how they were cycling through different IP addresses to keep from triggering multiple login failures that would result in that account being blocked and things like that. It was just an interesting thing. And this appears to be running on infected Synology boxes out there. So, yeah, uh, don't assume that box by default is the safest it can be. Always uh, dig in a little further. And in this case, Synology makes it damn easy with that security advisor tool. It will scan your system and give you the, the top things you should be paying attention to and probably change and provides direct links right to where you need to make those changes. It's pretty straightforward and easy. Highly recommended. <laughs> we like straightforward and yeah. easy. No <laughs> ransomware, no malware. Don't let somebody control your hardware. Take care of your stuff. And use a VPN. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, if you have any other brand of, uh, of NAS, it's probably worth going through and seeing. You know, is it up to date? Have you patched the updates? Do they have any security advisories? Because I assure you, Synology is not the only one people are going after. Oh, hell no. A anybody with a NAS should basically follow similar recommendations even if you're just using it to distribute video in your house heck yeah if it touches the internet you need to tighten things up more than just the default setup for sure and then they talked about light bulbs being an opportunity to hack into your home but not right now because it's too early and the data burst into tears tweet at robert heron at patrick nord at avxl if you got a question for us uh you need a hashtag, hashtag AskAVXLWorks. And uh, I'll talk some more about uh, entry-level inexpensive amplifiers next week. It's frustrating uh, what is and isn't out there. And uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, hopefully, I'll actually get the chance to test some of these. But it is very, very interesting to look at the performance. And the biggest challenge, of course, is uh, the quality of the build um, in a way that you just don't run into uh, with things like AVRs, for example. Nice. Uh, I digress, because it's time for us to wrap it up. With that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. And one last thought before we go. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. <laughs>